We continue our study in the book of Genesis as we come to chapter 19. Uh, we came to chapter 19 last week, but we continue in that chapter. And one of the things about expository preaching is the fact that we come to God's word chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So you simply cannot just skip a particular portion of scriptures because you might be uncomfortable with it. And so that brings us to the text that is in front of us even tonight. You probably have heard of fire and brimstone kind of preachers. Well, we truly have in our text tonight, fire and brimstone. And so uh, turn with me uh, to Genesis 19. We're going to look at Genesis 19:12 to 29. As we get there, just want to give you a context for what we've been studying so far in this chapter. You know, the first 11 verses of this chapter have given us a glimpse of life in Sodom. We begin to get a taste of a day in the life of the Sodomites when the two angels uh, that are described as also men sometimes and sometimes as messengers, they arrive at the gates of Sodom. And in our study of the passage last week, we observed that by the time they arrived in Sodom, it was already evening. As they come there, they see Lot there. Lot immediately approaches them, and he insists uh, on hosting these men uh, without realizing that these were angels. He cooks for them, and he feeds them. And when the dinner comes to an end, they're getting ready to rest for the evening. Moses actually tells us that Lot's house is surrounded by men of the city, the men of Sodom. Uh, these are both uh, young and old. Uh, these are rich and poor, educated and uneducated, uh, people from every quarter of the city. And what do they want? Uh, last week we looked at what they wanted. They wanted to physically and sexually abuse these visitors. Uh, these were men of the city and they wanted to sexually assault the two visitors uh, that came to Lot. In other words, uh, these men had already reached the stage of God's judgment where God had given them over to degrading passions where men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, committing indecent acts. And so knowing exactly what they were looking for, Lot comes out of his house to plead with them not to act wickedly, and instead offers them his two virgin daughters. Uh, but by this time, the crowd has heard enough from Lot, and they remind him of his position. Uh, he is an alien. And what becomes clear is that they are in no position to be convinced. Uh, but instead, they keep pushing against Lot and are now getting dangerously close to breaking the door. It is at this stage that the men who are inside the house they reach out and they pull in Lot and shut the door. And then they strike the men who are outside with darkness. And it's here that we begin our time in God's word today. It's Genesis chapter 19 from 12 and Lord willing will plan to cover until verse 29. Now there are several ways in which we can study this passage in front of us. Uh, one is we can follow in uh, the passage in its timeline. What do I mean by that? Uh, notice in verse 12, uh, rather verse 10 and 11, and then verse 12 onwards, by the time the angels are interacting with uh, Lot's family, it's after, almost after midnight. 
uh, Lot is discussing with the angels. The angels uh, are trying to persuade Lot to, to leave Sodom, and they go back and forth. And then in verse 15, we are told when morning dawned, so it was dawn, when the angels urge Lot again. Notice verse 15. When morning dawned, the angels urge Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters, and so on. And so it was dawn. What, what is dawn? It's essentially still fairly, uh, uh, the sun is out in, in some sense. It's, it's bright in some senses, but it's still dark in other senses. It's dawn, it says. Then if you go to verse 23, it says the sun had risen over the earth, when Lot came to Zoar. And so by this time, it was early morning. Go down to verse 27. It says, now Abraham rose early in the morning. This is slightly after the time that what took place in verse 23. So perhaps it's middle of the morning or something, some, sometime around uh, that, that particular time. And so we could look at this passage and go time-wise, chronologically in that sense. Alternatively, we can look at this passage based on the location, based on where these individuals are. So for example, in chapter 19, verse 12 and 13, they're still in the house of Lot. In verse 14 and 15, Lot, notice in verse 14, it says Lot went out. So they are now outside the house as he goes to convince his sons-in-law. In verse 16, at the end, it says, The angels put him outside the city. Now they are outside the city. In verse 23, we are told that Lot is in Zoar, which which means a small town or a small city. Then in verse verse 24 to verse 26, we are told that the Lord destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And then verse 27, we are given a brief description of where Abraham is. He's at the Oaks of Mamre. And so you could look at the passage in terms of its location, or you could look at the passage in terms of its timeline. However, we are going to stay away from both of those divisions because the theme of the passage is heavy and it is grave as we see the wrath of God unleashed on the sinful and a wicked city and its inhabitants. And this theme is is woven through the narrative in front of us. And both the timeline and locations don't do full justice to what is happening here. What then do we see in this particular passage? Well, I mentioned the verses next to my points just so that you know where I am in the text, but we won't go verse by verse, although we will plan on covering everything that is there. As we consider the judgment on Sodom uh, in the second section, first of all, we notice the verdict reached. Notice verse 13 in the middle. Uh, Let me start reading from the beginning. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord. The verdict is this. The outcry is indeed great. Uh, That is, uh, that the Sodomites and those who are living in the surrounding cities are guilty as charged. But where do we read the charge? Go back in chapter 18. Notice verse 20. Here the Lord is speaking to Abraham, and here he tells him the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I'm going to go there or send my messengers there and see for myself if the outcry that has come is indeed in line with the reality on the ground. And then in verse 1 to verse 11, 
the two messengers, the two angels, experience firsthand that that is indeed true. Uh, the outcry from the inhabitants is indeed great. Now, what is this outcry? It's the cry of lament and desperation from a city and its inhabitants that are reeling under the weight of their own sin. That's the outcry. You see, this is a city or a group of cities and their inhabitants that have not only sinned against the Lord in the privacy of their homes, but are openly now and brazenly sinning against the Lord. Uh, that's why we have these men come outside of Lot's home and, and openly declaring their intent, their sinful intent. Uh, sin has no longer remained in the privacy of their homes, but it's now out in the open. Now, Before we come down too heavy on the sodomites, the Bible actually describes the condition of our own hearts as sinners in similar terms. Uh, we are all in the same sinking boat. Uh, there is no one, Paul says, who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who does good, not even one. Our throats are like open graves, says Paul. Only deadness is found in us, and every word that comes out of our mouth is deceptive. Isn't it Isaiah who quotes our Lord saying, your sins are like scarlet, uh, they're red like crimson. And because that is our condition before a holy God, we're all guilty. Uh, Paul goes on to say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, through one man sin entered the world, and that man was Adam, Romans 5, and then death entered through sin. That is because of sin, and death then spread to all men because all have sinned. Uh, the messengers are here, the angels, and they have gathered evidence, and the evidence then helps them to reach a verdict. And the verdict is that the outcry is indeed great, guilty, guilty as charged. Secondly, we come to the sentence that is passed. A guilty verdict, you see, demands a punishment. And the punishment uh, is to be such that it fits the crime. And what is the crime? It is that the inhabitants of the city have sinned, and they have sinned against a holy God. They have disobeyed him, uh, they have broken his law, and they have violated his commandments. Uh, this is a sin against the one who is the creator of everything. Uh, this is the sin against the one who is self-existent. Uh, this is a sin against an eternal God. And he is a judge. And as the judge, he gets to decide the consequences of this crime. And what is his sentence? What is the penalty for violating God's law? Oh, it's in the immediate sense, it is that there is a plan to destroy the city and its inhabitants. Notice verse 13. We are about to destroy this place. And then again at the end. The Lord has sent us to destroy it. Uh, the city and its inhabitants will be punished. And the punishment will come in the form of complete and utter destruction of the city. Uh, the word there, by the way, for destroy is also sometimes translated as corrupt and was first used in connection with the sin and the violence uh, the days before Noah's days. Uh, the earth was corrupt and in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence, tells Moses about the days before Noah. Uh, this is the same word that is used multiple times in the last chapter 
in our Lord's conversation with Abraham. Uh, will you destroy it, Lord, if, uh, if uh, there are 50, 45, 40, 30, 20 righteous, 10 righteous people? No, I will not destroy if I find 10 righteous in the city. And as we look at this verdict and, and this sentence, we find that not even 10 righteous are found in this city, and so it will be destroyed. You see, there is, as much as we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, there is a consequence to your sin and mine as well, isn't it? When man sinned, there were consequences to that sin. What were some of those consequences? Don't feel the need to write down everything, but certainly there are, these are the more prominent ones. There are many. This is not an exhaustive list, but first of all, all creation is corrupted. The whole creation groans, says Paul, and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. But not only that, there is physical death. You see, God had warned Adam, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And what does Satan tell Eve? You will surely not die. How deceptive. But one of the other consequences of sin is also that there is spiritual death. For the wages of sin, Paul says, is death. Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were spiritually dead. There's also an inherited sin. Uh, Romans 5, 12, a verse that we earlier referred to. Through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We all, without exception, are sinners. Then there is individual sin. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust gives birth, gives birth through sin. There's guilt, there is conflict, but there's also Eternal punishment, more relevant to the chapter that we're looking at here. Revelation 20, 15, John records for us, and if anyone, anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Consequences of sin. You see, God is holy as we were singing about, and therefore he must punish sin. Think of the great Italian painter and artist Leonardo da Vinci who said, he who does not punish evil commands it to be done. He who does not punish evil commands it to be done. God must punish sin. And God acts in line with his character. He is a holy God and therefore he must punish sin. But notice before he punishes sin, what he does. He also warns. He prepares the recipients of his judgment for what is coming. Just once... Just twice, notice the number of times the angels plead with Lord as we think of the warnings that were given. Now we, were, we are weaving in and out of the passage here and with the timelines and the location. We want to get a sense of the Lord's heart as he, through his messengers, issues a series of warnings. Notice in verse 12, then the two men said to Lord, whom else have you here? Is there anyone else here? Whomever you have in the city that belongs to you, Lord, whoever knows you, is related to you, your sons-in-law, your daughters, your, your sons, bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place. Bring them out now. 
Secondly, notice, then there's warnings to the sons-in-law through Lot. He goes to them as he persuades them. In verse 14, it says, Lot went out. You know what that means? That means that his sons-in-law were a part of the men of the city who were outside wanting to have uh, sexual relations with these men who are inside. And therefore it says, he went out and spoke to his sons. He says, up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. Uh, this is this pleading, this imploring, uh, this beseeching is going on throughout the night and right until the morning hours. As it dawns, the angels then, verse 15, are seen urging Lot, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. Uh, do you sense a sense of urgency here? Uh, th- there is not much time, Lot. We need to move and we need to move fast, fast. Do you notice the word swept away in verse 15? It's the same word that Abraham has used uh, first when he pleads for Sodom. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Verse 23, chapter 18. It means to, to remove something. It is also translated as destroy or perish. Again, repeated in verse 17. You know, as you think of these warnings to Lot, you think by this time, a lot gets a sense of the urgency of the situation. But notice what happens at the beginning of verse 16. We are told he hesitated. Uh, he, he faltered. He dilly-dallied. And he, he, he was not sure what to do. And so what do the men do? Notice verse 16 again. They don't give him a verbal warning anymore. They seize his hand. They grab him. Just like they did when they pulled him inside the house. In verse 10, this time they pull him out of the house and with him his wife and his two daughters. Uh, There are two angels and there are four individuals that need to be rescued. Uh, These two angels use their four hands and they grab these four individuals out of the house and bring them out of the city. Verse 16 at the end. And as we think of the warnings that we are given here, but before we go to the next warning... Can I quickly stop here and let the pulling and seizing of Lord just settle in a little bit? You know, here is a believer, and we know that Lot is a believer because Peter describes him as a righteous man. Uh, here is a believer who should find joy in obeying the Lord, who should be able to say, Lord, I delight to obey you. I delight to obey your commands. Your commandments are not burdensome. But instead of that, he has to be grabbed and pulled into doing what he should have done joyfully and with delight. Now, before you're too quick to judge Lord, think about how many times uh, this is also how many of us respond to the Lord's commandments. Uh, For some of us, the lessons we should have learned long ago, we find ourselves doing the same mistakes, the same sins again and again same patterns and then one fine day just like Lot we find ourselves being grabbed by the hands to do those things which we should have done with delight and joy how and and why does the Lord do this notice verse 16 in the middle after they seize their hands it says for the compassion of the Lord was upon him the compassion of the Lord was upon Lot And if you are a child of God, the compassion of the Lord is upon you. We'll talk more about that a little 
later back to the warnings, they get Lot, his wife, and his two daughters out of the house, and then verse 16, at the end, out of the city, and when they bring them outside, they issue uh, another series of warnings, four of all, uh, four in total in verse 17. When they had brought them outside, one said, escape for your life. We are going to destroy this city and its inhabitants, but you need to take action. You need to escape for your life. Secondly, they say, do not look behind you. Something that one of them does, doesn't. Uh, one of them does later on, but we'll come to that as well. Then they say, do not stay anywhere in the valley because we're going to destroy this entire valley and the cities that are surrounding it. If not, the valley where, uh, you know, we're going, to we're going to destroy all of the things that you see here. But instead of the valley, where should Lot's family go? Notice what they say, escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. Uh, the, the speed of the warnings is increasing. The urgency of all is picking up. This is not the end of the warnings, though there's one more. Uh, this comes to Lot as he tries to negotiate with the angels and requests them to let him go to a small town by the name Zor. Uh, what does Lot say? Verse 18 and 19, he says, I won't be able to reach the mountains, Lord. In the time I take to reach there, disaster is going to overtake me and I'm going to die. So let me go to this small town, this, uh, this little town. If I go there, my life may be saved. And what do the angels say? They say, all right, we'll let you go there. We will grant you uh, this request, verse 21. But in verse 22, it's given another warning. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do until anything until you arrive there. How many warnings does a believer need? for him or her to obey the Lord? How many warnings does an unbeliever need for him or her to obey the Lord? You know, the Lord is not obligated to give us any warnings. He is God and he can choose what he wants to do and yet in his grace and his compassion we find him giving a series of warnings to Lord and his family to escape the coming judgment. And you know, just like he does with Lot and his family, he through his word also warns us of an impending judgment. Uh, his warnings always precede his judgments. Now his warnings do not always avert his judgments. Why is that? It is because people fail to pay attention to the warnings. Now what are some warnings you and I have received? You know, as sinners... In rebellion against God, we like to follow our own ways, don't we? In Proverbs 14, 12, the writer says, There is a way which seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. Uh, our Lord warns Eli through Samuel. Remember that incident in 1 Samuel chapter 3, where he calls Samuel? Uh, before he intends to destroy the Ninevites, he warns them through his prophet Jonah. And then when we come to the New Testament in the story of the rich man and Lazarus in, uh, uh, in Luke chapter 16, you know, both of them live and then they die and Lazarus, the poor man, is carried away by the angel to, the, uh, to Abraham's bosom and the rich man was also sent to a place. Uh, it was not heaven. It was what is termed there as Hades, a place also called as Sheol in the scriptures. Uh, this place, by the way, in the New Testament refers to the place of the evil and wicked people prior to their judgment in hell. 
And so that's where this rich man finds himself. And at the end of that story, the rich man begs Abraham to send Lazarus back to his family, to his father's house, where he has five brothers. Why? In order, he says, listen carefully, that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Now, if you know someone who died as an unbeliever, is there a more heart-wrenching cry than this in Luke 16? Please send someone to my family, my relatives, my friends to warn them so that they will not come to the same place as I have come. Warnings. Our Lord says, Matthew 10, verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 24, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Acts 17, as Paul preaches to these Greeks, he says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, from the dead. If you're joining us for our evening service, our pastor is going through the book of Revelation. Uh, this is what Revelation 1.1 says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bond servants, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bond servant, John. Warnings. And there's one. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, as Peter writes, he says, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You feel like he's not doing anything? Notice that that is the patience of God towards you. You know, lest you say or make the case that the God of the Old Testament is the God of wrath and judgment, but the God of the New Testament, well, he is kind and gentle. You see, all of the verses that I've mentioned and I've read for you, except the one in Proverbs, are all from the New Testament. All the warnings that needed to be issued have been issued. Both in our case and also in the case of the Sodomites. Uh, that then brings us to the actual judgment itself as we look at verse 24 to verse 26. All of the build-up in the last two chapters, chapter 18 and then initial portion of verse ni chapter 19 and even the previous ones, because the first time Moses warns us actually about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is actually in Genesis chapter 13, verse 10. All of that to build up, finally, it comes to these three verses. Notice verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. There are three distinct things that face the wrath of God here. 
Uh, first of all, if you notice carefully, it's the place itself. It's mentioned here as Sodom and Gomorrah, only two, but we know that there were more than two based on the fact that the angels intended to also overthrow, uh, destroy Zoar, uh, but they don't do that because Lot is going there. But mentioned here are Sodom and Gomorrah because they are representative of the cities that were there. Uh, perhaps more than five cities is what the angels had in mind. And just like we say, you know, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, I, I implied within that statement is the fact that everything uh, covers that, including the smaller towns, it's mentioned here as Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, secondly, notice it's not only the place that is destroyed, it is all that has breath that has been destroyed. All the inhabitants of the cities, includes men that came outside of Lot's house the previous night, uh, it includes Lot's son and sons-in-law, it includes Lot's neighbors, it includes his friends, his business partners, his fellow leaders who sat with him the previous evening uh, at the gates of Sodom, people whom he knew and people whom he didn't. All of them, all of them wiped out within a matter of few minutes. Completely unhighlighted, included and not in the immediate destruction, is also someone who is closest to him, verse 26, his wife. Now we are, interestingly, we're not told her name. We are all we are told that even though she was brought out of the city, she looked back, and the word therefore looked back is a word actually that means longed to go back. She was longing to go back to Sodom. And as soon as, she, as soon as she turned, it says she became a pillar of salt. While they were able to and successfully took her out of Sodom, someone said, they were not able to take Sodom out of her, Lot's wife. There is the inhabitants, but thirdly also, notice verse 25. Everything that grew on the ground was also destroyed. It was plundered and completely destroyed. Now, this was a place, actually, that was well watered. Remember why Lot actually went here? It was a, a green and full of life kind of a place. Moses even compares this area, actually, to the Garden of the Lord in chapter 13, the Garden of Eden. Uh, there was water, there was greenery, there was vegetation. Uh, this place is one that, that teemed with life in the desert that the Middle East was. But within a matter of moments, it was all raised to the ground, completely destroyed. How did destruction take place? How did the Lord destroy? Notice verse 24. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire out of the heaven. Now in the case of Noah, when the heavens opened, there we have rain, but it contained water. Here too, there is a rain, but it's raining brimstone and fire. Uh, brimstone is actually an old term that is used to describe sulfur. Now, sulfur is an element that exists in soil and plants and foods and water. By itself, is, it is low on toxicity, but if you ingest or inhale it, it can cause burning sensation and even breathing issues. It can also lead to blurred vision if there's more exposure to the element itself. What we are seeing here is an outpouring of not only sulfur, but hot sulfur, described as brimstone and fire. Then we are told 
the Lord overthrew these cities. Verse 25. Uh, that word there, overthrow, scholars tell us that may also refer to a violent earthquake. It's shifted perhaps the tectonic plates underneath the ground. And this shifting of the earth because of the earthquake included then a volcanic kind of eruption and a violent electrical storm. As that's what all caused this brimstone and fire. How tragic. How tragic. Even though the sun had risen, uh, there may still some, be some darkness there, which explains why fire is mentioned here. Because though it's not fully a daytime, it can clearly be seen in the dark. And therefore, it says brimstone and fire. What a powerful scene that must have been. To see all that existed and the beauty of it all completely destroyed in a matter of few minutes. You might disagree with things in the Bible, although, although as a child of God, I would say spend more time reading it before you come to any conclusion. But you see, the Bible presents things and individuals as they are. It doesn't sugarcoat anything. It does not hide the faults of his heroes. We will see an example of that even next week. What it says is always true. And what it has described about Sodom is true. And what it says about what will happen to the earth as it stands now is also true. What does the Bible say will happen to the earth? You don't have to turn there, but Peter says in 2 Peter 3.7, the present earth and heaven, the atmosphere which surrounds it, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now this earth, in other words, is headed towards the same direction, in the same direction as we find Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 10 of the same chapter, he says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which heavens will pass away with a roar and elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be all burned up. All of the things that we see will one day be destroyed by burnings and the element will melt with intense heat. That is the fate of the earth that you and I live on. Now you begin to see why scriptures actually records this story here in Genesis 19. You see, in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, we're given an illustration, an example of the destiny of all that is created. All of it, the scriptures tell us, will one day be destroyed by fire. And if that is all that you get from this passage, then we have understood only half the story. We've only seen one aspect of God. Because as we step back from the text and consider the story again, we will see fifthly and finally the Lord's loving kindness demonstrated. The Lord's loving kindness demonstrated. Notice verse 27 to verse 29. It says, Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw and behold the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Notice earlier it was mentioned as fire, and now it is smoke. You don't, you're not able to see smoke in the nighttime, but in the daytime you are. Verse 29, thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. 
What a sobering passage this is. We see here, and verse 12 to 26, really the Lord's loving kindness on, on display. How do we see that? In at least four ways. First of all, we see that in his warnings to Lot. We've, all, we've seen all of the warnings in this passage. Why give a warning? So that those who heed the warning will escape. And in giving the warning, we see God's loving kindness. He desires for us to escape the coming judgment on this earth. He desires for us to escape the judgment that will ultimately follow. It's very interesting in verse 12. Notice, then the two men said to Lot, whom else have you here? Do you sense a desire from the angels that they want to save as many as they can? In his warnings to Lot, notice secondly, in his actions towards Lot. Uh, twice we have seen the angels seizing the hand of Lot, pulling him inside the house and therefore delivering him from the ire of the mob in verse 10 and then seizing his hand again when he displayed hesitation in obeying the Lord, verse 16. And there the writer even reminds us that he did this because of his compassion on Lot. The Lord had compassion for Lot. He had pity. He had mercy on Lot. Uh, this word here, is used only twice in the Old Testament, this word compassion, here and then again in Isaiah chapter 63. And in both instances, we get a glimpse of how amazing this God is. In both instances, his compassion is seen in doing everything he can in saving and redeeming his people. In Isaiah chapter 63, verse 9, it says, in his love and in his mercy. This is the word again. It says, in his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them and he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. He is a compassionate God. In his actions towards Lord, thirdly, in his deliverance of Lord. Where do we see that? Well, we see it in the fact that Lord and his two daughters are the only ones who have escaped the judgment. We'll read about that next week, Lord willing. But there are other ways in which he's already delivered. He is delivered from the angry mob, uh, verse 10 and 11. He is delivered from the judgment that came upon the city. He is delivered in being allowed not to flee to the mountains where he would have died, he says, but instead to the small town of Zoar. He is delivered from the judgment that would have come upon Zoar because that was a town that was on the list also to be overthrown. The Lord again and again deliver, delivers Lot. In his warnings, in his actions, in his deliverance. But fourthly, we see it in the Lord's remembrance of Abraham. Notice verse 29. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham. If you remember chapter 18, the Lord actually ends up delivering Lot and sending him out of the midst of the judgment, not because of his own righteousness. Remember chapter 18? It is because Abraham intercedes on his behalf. God remembered Abraham. When the Bible says that the Lord remembered something, it doesn't mean that he tends to forget because God by his very nature remembers. But when it says God remembered, it is pointing to the fact that this God is a faithful God. Uh, this God is a God who loves and cares for his people with a tender care. How do we know that? See, every time the Bible mentions that he remembered, 
It is followed by a work or action on behalf of his people, like it is here. In chapter 8, when God remembered Noah, he sent a wind to dry the land. In Exodus chapter 2, when God remembered the Hebrews in Egypt, he set in motion a plan to deliver them from the Egyptians. These are what we call as anthropomorphic terms that are used, which is to say that they are traits of finite human beings that are applied to God so that we could understand God in the language that we know. That's what this is. God remembers. It points to his faithfulness towards Abraham and towards his people. But also notice in verse 19, there is a term that is used and it is used for the first time. Now behold, as Lot is speaking to to the angels, he says, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have magnified your loving kindness. This is the book of beginnings and so we will see words used for the first time. But this is the word used for the first time here and it is the word loving kindness. And what a significant time to use it, isn't it? In the midst of all the destruction and devastation around, in the middle of judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and all its inhabitants, Lord acknowledges the kind of love with which God has loved him. You have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. It's the Hebrew word hesed, loving kindness. It's a combination of love and loyalty in the context of a relationship. Love and loyalty in the context of a relationship. This is God's covenantal kind of love. It's not just love. It's a commitment to be loyal in loving us. That's what this is. It's it's his unfailing love. It's his steadfast love towards his people. That is the kind of love with which he loves his people. Regardless of whatever comes into our life, God's loving kindness is telling us that, what we can, that, that we can ultimately always count on him. He will never let you go. What a time to be reminded of this. In the middle of judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, Lord reminds himself of the kind of love with which God has loved him. What an amazing God we have. I know I've not gone chronologically as I've done always, and so, but I hope that you get a sense of what this passage is all about. What are some lessons that we can draw from this passage? What does this passage really teach us? Well, I have at least three things that this passage teaches us. First of all, this passage warns us of the impending judgment of God, a thing that we have looked at so carefully. You see, as bad as the destruction and judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah was, as bad and worse as it was, what was worse was not that they all died under brimstone and fire, but what was worse was that all who were destroyed did not repent, and therefore they will spend all eternity apart from God. What is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah is that these men and women will be in an eternal lake of fire. Jonathan Edwards actually preached two sermons on this particular event titled The Folly of Looking Back and Fleeing Out of Sodom. He makes two points which I thought would be helpful for us. He says Sodom has in all ages since been covered with lake which was first brought on it by fire and brimstone to be a type 
of the lake of fire and brimstone in which ungodly men shall have their part forever and ever. Do you see how close it is to what today is the Dead Sea? In other words, Jonathan Edwards is making the connection between the Dead Sea, a lake that is the aftermath of the destruction of Sodom and the eternal lake of fire. There's no life in the Dead Sea. If you've been to Israel, you know that. The eternal lake of fire. That's one. But secondly, he says the mystery of hell, that is the destiny after the judgment of the unbeliever, is set forth by various shadows and images in scripture. So talking about death and hell, he says God uses a lots, of, lots of different words to describe what hell is. It's described as blackness of darkness, a never dying worm, a furnace of fire, a lake of fire and brimstone, the torment of the valley of the son of Hinnom, a storm of fire and brimstone. And then he goes on to say the reasons why so many similitudes are used is because none of them are sufficient to describe the torture that hell is. None of them are sufficient to describe the kind of eternity that awaits those who reject the Lord's offer of salvation. First of all then, the passage warns us of the impending judgment of God. Uh, secondly, it instructs us to hate sin just as the Lord does. We've come to this passage. Know that this is what the passage intends to teach us. It instructs us to hate sins. How did all of this come, come about? How did the judgment come, about, come about on Sodom and Gomorrah? Why is the world headed towards where it is headed towards? Isn't it because of sin? A sin in general, because we all live in a fallen world, but also because of my sin and your sin. It won't do just saying, yes, I know there is sin. I know I am a sinner. No, we must go beyond that and have an attitude and mindset that just looks the same way God looks at sin. And how does he look at sin? The Bible tells us that he hates it. He hates it. I had a longer application, but let me just quickly highlight the different responses to sin in this chapter alone. We learn from the men of Sodom, if they were to instruct us, they would say, follow your heart, do what you want. Isn't that what we learn in the first 11 verses? They followed their heart, they did what they wanted. If you were to talk to the sons-in-law, you know, after um, Lot warned them, they felt like Lot was joking. It felt to them that it was a joke. Uh, don't worry about it. Have fun, man. Eat, drink, and be merry. That was their attitude. A Lot himself, verse 16, at the beginning, he hesitated. Lord, I know this is wrong, but let me just do this for a little longer. Lot's wife, notice verse 26. Lord, let me just look once more. Let me just enjoy the pleasures of sin once more. And then Lot, in pleading with God to send him to Zoar, the little small, small little town. What's the big deal, Lord, about little sins in our life? Uh, these were some of the attitudes about sin in this particular chapter. Uh, what's the Lord's instructions? What is his command? Get up now. Get out now. Don't linger any longer. 
Don't turn around, repent and believe. In chapter 16 of Luke, as the Lord is preparing his disciples for his second coming, if there's one application from this chapter that the Lord reminds his listeners, it's this in verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Why? He says, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Are there things in this world that are having their hold on you? Are there things more important to you than God is? Remember Lot's wife. Instructs us to hate sin just as the Lord does. Thirdly and finally, it points us to God's chosen man. If there's one who has never sinned, who has lived the perfect life, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, if you look closely at both Abraham and Lot, we find a man through whose action someone else is delivered. Abraham intercedes for righteous men in Sodom, particularly Lot, his his nephew. Lot, because he's sent to Zoar and there is no destruction of Zoar coming about, in a sense, Lot delivers the people who lived in Zoar. What are we to do? We are to turn our eyes to the only one who is able and willing to save you. Yes, an eternal judgment is coming, and those who ignore him and do not heed his warning will stand no chance, zero chance of survival. If you're not a believer, this passage is pointing you to Christ, the only way God has made it possible for you to be right with him. If you are a believer, turn your eyes to Jesus, not as your judge, but as your loving Savior. He took God's wrath on himself so that you and I will never have to face it. On that cross 2,000 years back, both justice and mercy met where he gave his life for you. He alone is worthy of our praise and worship and adoration. Live in the light of the fact, even as we learn in Luke 17, live in the light of the fact that he is coming and he is coming for you and for me. He is coming to reign and there will be a day when every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and earth and those who are under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. We live in light of that fact. And this passage points us to the only man who has never sinned, God's chosen man. If you are an unbeliever, we plead with you to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. As a believer, take comfort from the fact that he is coming, and he's coming soon. Father, thank you for this passage. What a sobering passage this is. But thank you for the reminders from your word about what we can learn from it. I thank you for the illustrations and examples we have in how the city was destroyed and how Abraham and Lot, even in their imperfect ways, played a part that pointed us to your chosen one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and and perfecter of our faith. Thank you for the encouragement that this passage is to those of us who are your children that we can rest and trust in you. You truly are a God who shows loving kindness, compassionate love, steadfast love towards us. And so, Lord, we give you praise and honor as we commit the rest of the evening into your hands. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.